Our guest today is Kent Berridge. He is a distinguished professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Michigan, studying the neurobiology and brain systems underlying psychological processes like motivation, pleasure, craving, and addiction. His research has shown a dissociation between reward liking and reward wanting, and has led him to propose the incentive salience hypothesis of dopamine, which states that dopamine mediates wanting and craving, but not liking and pleasure. Contrary to popular belief, dopamine is not a pleasure molecule, and its psychological function remains highly controversial. Can we start with a very brief dopamine 101? So what is dopamine and where is it released in the brain? Well, uh, dopamine is a neurotransmitter, a monoamine neurotransmitter, um, and it's released in many places in the brain, but most famously and in most densely in midbrain projections up to the striatum and limbic structures like the nucleus accumbens. So this is the mesolimbic dopamine system, the reward, famous reward system in the brain. Mm. Why do you find this molecule so special? Well, I think neuroscience stumbled into the specialness of dopamine basically decades ago when, when everyone was searching for a basis for reward. And it was known even in the 1960s, you know, that electrodes, rats would self-stimulate and human people would self-stimulate to have these implanted electrodes turned on in their brain. So something electrically could be excited that seemed to be a reward system. But what was this thing that was being excited? And in the late 1960s and early 1970s, it became clear that the major component of what this electrodes were activating for reward was dopamine systems in the brain. Mm. So before we talk more about the functions of dopamine, um, how evolutionarily ancient is this molecule and what other organisms also use dopamine? It's very, very ancient. It's at least 600 million years old and quite possibly older. It's in um, all mammals, it's in all vertebrates, it's in insects as well, and crustaceans and such. Um, and to find a common ancestor of all of these, one would have to go back at least 600 million years. So it's a neurotransmitter shared with this ancient root. The molecule itself is actually even older still. It's a molecule that's found in blood and in other things. So it's a, it's a molecule that was invented by life God knows when, but uh, it's been used as a neurotransmitter for at least 600 million years. Mm. Okay, so you, met, you mentioned a few of those uh, key experiments just now. So could we talk about historically, how have we thought about the role of dopamine in the brain and how has that changed throughout the years? Well, dopamine was discovered around 1970, in the early 1970s, and there was argument in the early 1970s about whether it was dopamine that was especially important or a closely related neurotransmitter, uh, norepinephrine, which is also concentrated in the brainstem, like in the locus ceruleus. In fact, there were people at Oxford who were champions of the norepinephrine view um, for quite a while. But then it became possible with selective drugs to activate or inactivate just the dopamine or just the norepinephrine. And it was found that if you manipulate dopamine, it really changed reward. If you suppress dopamine, it seemed to reduce the rewards of all kinds of rewards, foods, cocaine, dr drugs of abuse, um, sex, social rewards, 
all kinds of rewards seem to be diminished in animals if you block dopamine, not if you block the norepinephrine so much. So by the mid-1970s, I'd say attention had really focused on dopamine, and the notion began to arise by the late 70s that dopamine might be the reward molecule, maybe the pleasure molecule. That was the idea that arose around 1980. So how, like, experimentally, how do you, uh, how, how do you show that dopamine was linked with reward? So how, how do we know what reward is in, to an animal? That's a, a great question. And the way it was studied in the 1970s was to offer a reward and see if the rats would, usually rats, if they would consume it, you know, if they would work for it, if they would learn a new behavior and perform that behavior in order to get that reward. So it was basically reinforcement tests, standard learning. Um, do you, do you, will you work for this? Do you want it that much? Um, and if dopamine was manipulated, the two kinds of ways that dopamine was were manipulated in early experiments was with drugs, especially drugs that would block dopamine receptors. And to be a little bit more dramatic, um, the second way was to essentially eliminate dopamine selectively from the brain. Um, it's possible to do this in a, in a surgical intervention with an injection of a selective neurotoxin. That's a chemical that uh, this one, particular one, 6-hydroxydopamine, if it was injected into the midbrain bundle of dopamine neurons, it would kill the neurons that had dopamine, but it wouldn't kill norepinephrine neurons or other neurons, any other neurons, if you gave the right procedures. So you could selectively eliminate dopamine. And this was the most dramatic demonstration. This was found to produce what was very similar to what had been discovered in the 1960s as the lateral hypothalamic syndrome, which was a lesion of the lateral hypothalamus. And rats with that syndrome wouldn't eat voluntarily. They wouldn't drink voluntarily. You'd have to nurse them to keep them alive, like we'd be nursed in an intensive care ward in the hospital um, to keep them nutrition, you know, nutritionally and hydrationally okay. Um, as, it's as though all reward values had dropped away. Nothing had value to them. They wouldn't pursue those things. Um, they wouldn't consume those things. So by blocking dopamine with drugs or with these dramatic lesions, um, those were the two things and rewards melted away. Probably what really put the notion of pleasure on the scene was the work of uh, then a Canadian psychologist working in Canada at, McGill, at um, Concordia University, which was Roy Wise in Montreal. And Roy Wise would give drugs that would block dopamine receptors, especially pimazide, neuroleptic drugs. And he would find that if he gave a moderate dose of this drug, the rats would initially pursue the food or they'd pursue the drug like cocaine or they'd pursue for sex. Um, but if he kept giving the drug day after day, they would gradually stop pursuing these rewards and stop consuming these rewards. And he suggested that this looked as though the pleasure had melted away from these rewards. It looked like extinction, basically. Um, extinction is when you stop giving any rewards and, gra and performance gradually falls off. And, uh, that's an animal learning uh, old procedure. This was extinction mimicry. They were still getting the rewards, but they were getting the dopamine blocking drugs and they behaved as though they were not getting the rewards. That is, they gradually decline the pursuit of all of these. So Wise suggested that this meant that dopamine was the pleasure of food, of sex, of drugs. And if you blocked it, you were basically blocking that pleasure. Mm. So these historical experiments put dopamine as like a pleasure molecule. And that's how 
even in pop culture, that's how people think of it. Um, when people feel happy, they say, I've got a surge of dopamine. Is this still how neuroscientists think of dopamine? Well, I don't, I don't think it is how they think about dopamine today. The ones who are actually studying dopamine don't think of it that way. But yes, you're right. This was such a tremendously successful meme um, of Roy Wise, dopamine as the pleasure molecule. So it echoes throughout popular journalism and culture. It echoes through neuroscience textbooks still today. Even those, those who are studying reward brain systems might not say dopamine is pleasure. So you'll find a lot of textbooks that basically treat it as though it was. Basically, the, the approach has been to say dopamine is reward. And reward, as you asked in the beginning, how does, what is it? You know, how do you measure it? Um, if you just mean pursuing and, and working to get these things, yes, dopamine is reward. But if psychologically dopamine has components like pleasure liking, but also motivational wanting, and also learning about rewards, all of these things together within reward, then the question could be what among those components is dopamine doing most? And that's really where the debate lies today has for the last so, What's the fundamental distinction between liking and wanting and experimentally, how would you dissociate between them? Well, um, the distinction between liking and wanting is one that sort of came out of our labs here at Michigan and uh, it was a surprise. It was not what we were looking for. We never believed in the beginning that uh, wanting and liking were separable. I thought that they were basically two words for essentially the same thing. If you want something, you like it. If you like something, you want it. Typically, they go together. Usually, they're almost synonymous. Um, the way we stumbled into experimentally was actually in a very early collaboration with Roy Wise. When I had just arrived at Michigan as an assistant professor, um, I collaborated with Roy Wise in Montreal. He sent a graduate student down to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I'm based. And we did our first experiment together. Um, what we did was to give dopamine blocking drugs, just like Roy had been always doing these pimazide neuroleptic drugs to block the dopamine receptors. But I was studying pleasure liking of foods in a way that was a little bit different from the traditional animal learning approach of will you consume it only or will you work to get the food. I was asking how, whether rats and brain systems liked food rewards by asking really more the way human parents have asked their newborn human infants, do you, our little infant, do you like the taste of foods that we eat? By just say giving a little taste into the, onto the tongue of the infant and seeing how the infant responds. Does the, does the baby smile and, and lick its lips or does the baby screw up its face and gape? open its mouth wide or scrinch its eyes and shake its head, you know, in which case it clearly doesn't really like this particular food. Human babies do that. Um, so do human, so do uh, baby chimpanzees, so do baby monkeys, old world monkeys and new world monkeys. It turns out that even omnivore rats will lick their lips to sweetness and they will gape and, and shake their heads and shake their paws and rub their chins on the ground to bitterness and to other nasty tastes. And this is kind of a way then of assessing the immediate liking of this taste, the sort of immediate hedonic impact. You don't have to want it or do anything for it because the taste is coming right into the mouth of the rat. And so we were doing this and we expected with Roy Wise that if we suppress the dopamine system, we would reduce the liking reactions to sweetness, almost as though as if we had diluted the sucrose, taken away the sucrose. Um, so it wasn't as sweet anymore. So we did the experiment and that didn't happen. The rats had absolutely normal liking reactions to the sweetness, even when their dopamine was blocked. And that was disappointing. But, you know, I, I didn't really believe 
that result at that time, because it was our very first experiment of getting these kinds of drugs in my lab. And it was Roy's lab's first experiment doing these facial reactions. And it was just possible that we did something wrong. You know, as, as you know, it, you do experiments and to, in many procedures, it's a delicate thing. You have to get everything right in order to get accurate results out. So maybe we had done something wrong. So we repeated the experiment. I repeated it several times with various drugs and the same result always happened. Um, I had a colleague here at Michigan, Terry Robinson, who at that time was studying brain dopamine systems. And he was using the more dramatic dopamine lesion, 6-hydroxy dopamine selective neurotoxin lesion in, in rat brains. Um, and I thought, well, why don't we combine? Because maybe the drugs are just not strong enough to really reduce the liking in a way that we can measure it. So let's just take away the dopamine system. We'll keep the rats perfectly comfortable and nourished and hydrated and in, in, you know, good, good condition and in, in, in comfortable situation. Um, and we can then give them sweet sugars and surely now they will not like it. Maybe they'll even dislike the sugars. So we did that experiment and they were aphagic and a dipset. They would never eat or drink voluntarily. We nourished them um, through intragastric liquid diet feedings um, that would keep them in good, good health. And then we gave them the sweetness tastes and they were again, absolutely normal, just absolutely normal, not a decline at all. And we tried, we asked, could they learn about new taste values? So we did like taste aversion conditioning experiments, learning where you pair a new sweet taste several times with a little bit of nausea and gradually that taste becomes disgusting. This can happen for people, a learned taste aversion, and it certainly happens for rats, a learned taste aversion. So we asked, could they learn new likes and dislikes? And the answer was yes, absolutely normally, as quickly as normal rats. They had no deficits in their liking. They had no deficits in learning these new likes or dislikes. Um, but what they did not have was any motivation so far as we could see. It isn't that they're paralyzed. Now, it's, it's important, you know, because this is a dopamine lesion and dopamine systems are involved in things like Parkinson's disease going to the dorsal striatum, the neostriatum on top of the nucleus accumbens is very important to movement. But in either Parkinson's or in these rats, it isn't that they can't move, it isn't a paralysis. There are conditions that you can produce where they can move again suddenly. Um, and if you, so if the rat, for example, if you, if you just give it a little poke, it can easily turn around and even bite your finger if, you, if you're, it's discomforted. Um, but then it'll settle down again in, into this apathetic Parkinson-like state. So there was something missing from the rats, but it wasn't pleasure liking. And that was the beginning of the notion that maybe what was wrong was a deficit of wanting. We didn't really believe that hypothesis at the moment. You know, we sort of said, well, this is a post hoc potential explanation of what could be going on, but let's pose it as a tentative notion and then we'll test it further as we did throughout the 1990s. Right, and so what is the incentive salience theory of dopamine? Well, this, this is the wanting incentive sensitization and incentive salience theory of dopamine. Basically, there's, Incentive salience is wanting. It's this dopamine kind of wanting. It has particular psychological features. The features are, it's really, it's something that is attributed not only to rewards themselves, you want the food, addicts may want the drug, but also cues for things. So the smell of food becomes attractive and the smell of food becomes able to pique your appetite. If you haven't had lunch and you're not yet hungry, but you suddenly smell food, now maybe you are hungry and maybe you'd even like to eat that particular food when you smell it, the cues evoke 
a kind of wanting. And the dopamine system incentive salience is this kind of wanting. It makes these cues for reward noticeable, salient. So it's almost hard not to, to look at them. In fact, in human eye tracking experiments, if you ask people to sort of look for particular things but ignore the reward cues, the reward cues pull in their attention involuntarily. You can see their eyes being pulled in these directions, even if they're trying to avoid it. This is, it's hard not to notice reward cues if you want them at that moment. So that's the salience part of this incentive salience. The incentive part is the wanting. It's really the, the positive, um, anticipatory desire for these things, to consume them, to have them. So this is the idea that dopamine serves as a craving signal and um, pushes the organism towards approaching the, um, the, the reward cue. Yes, it's a craving signal. It's not an aversive drive craving signal, so it's not like hunger pains that are constantly there. It's not that. Um, it's an anticipatory positive kind of notion, this incentive wanting, salience wanting. Um, people, it can almost serve as a sham reward almost by itself. People will chase it. Animals will chase to have this again and again, this state. Um, and it's triggered by cues, especially. So the cues are attractive, and the cues trigger desire for their associated reward. What did Wise think about this? Um, he didn't like it and he didn't believe it. So he argued against it for many, many years. Um, and uh, probably around the mid-1990s, he gave up the notion that dopamine was pleasure. He explicitly gave it up. He thought he was convinced that. But uh, over the years, he's still, he's still alive and he still occasionally writes articles. And he'll so, sort of bounce back into that writing about dopamine again, almost as though it were pleasure. Um, Ideas are sometimes hard to give up, even by scientists. Yeah. And so would you say now that there's very solid evidence for the idea that dopamine mediates wanting and not liking? Well, I'd say there's very solid and sort of uh, widely agreed evidence that dopamine is not liking anymore. So then the question becomes, what is dopamine? And there are sort of, there's several camps, but the two main camps I would say are probably uh, incentive salience wanting, and on the other hand, learning, dopamine as learning camps. Mm. Okay, so yeah, what does dopamine have to do with learning? Well, it certainly has a lot to do with learning um, because dopamine does learn, do the dopamine neurons learn, and they are activated by cues for the rewards, and cues are simply learnt predictors of the rewards. So clearly the system is has a lot to do with learning. The real question is, is it mediating the learning? Is it actually causing the learning or is it causing the want, say, for the learned reward, the cue-triggered want or making the cue attractive? What is it doing? Is it, and that, then it would be a sort of a motivational consequence of learning would be a consequence of learning, not a cause of learning. It would be a cause of the motivation that accompanies that, that learned reaction. Could you describe some of the experiments that have led to the reward prediction error hypothesis? And do you think that the hypothesis is correct? Sure, the, the reward prediction error hypothesis really became famous through the work of Wolfram Schultz, an electrophysiologist originally working in Switzerland, but then now at Cambridge for many years. Um, in combination with other neuroscientists, computationally and theoretically oriented neuroscientists like Peter Diane um, in the 1990s, 
Um, the prediction error notion came out of uh, sort of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Prediction error was is an equation that allows a machine to basically produce more adaptive responses by getting feedback signals. It does something, and if it gets a positive reward-like signal, kind of a surprise, then it's more likely to do that thing again. And if it gets another reward-like signal, it's even more likely to do it again. So it, it strengthens gradually um, through prediction errors, positive reward surprises, basically. That's what these prediction errors are. Um, what Peter Dian noticed was that in Wolfram Schultz's electrophysiological data, the neurons, and the, the phenomenon was that Wolfram showed was that the neurons would originally respond, especially to things like rewards. So he was recording in monkeys and he would give them fruit juice reward as he recorded their dopamine neuron firing. And the first time they got it, it was fired to the fruit juice reward. Then you'd pair the fruit juice with predictive cues. So a visual stimulus would come on the screen and then a squirt of fruit juice would ha happen for the monkey. And this would happen just a second or two later, three seconds later, cue, reward, three seconds later, cue, reward. And what he found was that over a number of trials, the dopamine neurons stopped firing to the reward itself, the fruit juice, and started to move forward in time. So they were now firing when the cue appeared, the visual cue, the dopamine neurons would fire a burst. And then the reward fruit juice would come a few seconds later and they wouldn't fire this time. So the firing had moved, had learnt basically, and had moved to the learnt predictor of the reward. Um, this is something that the prediction error equation would, would predict for the signal that's going along with with this equation. The most convincing thing probably, though that really gave people a lot of excitement, was what Wolfram showed would happen if once the monkey had learned this prediction, you then gave it the cue for the reward, so the dopamine neurons would fire, but you then did not give it the reward, the fruit juice afterwards. So what would happen is the dopamine neurons would fire to the cue, and then there'd be nothing physically happening, but what the dopamine neurons would do would actually dip They'd fire, they'd go down in their firing rate for a second or two, a disappointment-like dip. And this again is what that prediction error equation could do because it could learn both increases in prediction and decreases in prediction. And this is how it would learn a decrease in prediction. Um, so there's a famous paper published in Science, the journal Science by um, Wolfram Schultz and Peter Diane and I think Luke Montague um, around 1997 that laid this idea out for the first time, and it was a tremendous hit among scientists. So elegant to have an equation predict the firing of neurons in the brain, that's, that's like catnip to neuroscientists. And so they were very excited, and that was the beginning of that notion. Mm. Do you see this as something mutually exclusive to the incentive salience theory, or do you think that there will be a unifying framework? Well, I think there could be a unifying framework. Um, the, the, the neurons absolutely do what Wolfram Schultz said they did. Um, they, so that's a very true phenomenon. The real question is, what does it mean? Does it mean that the dopamine neurons are the mechanism that is learning these predictions? Or does it mean something else, say that, for example, that the, the dopamine neurons are mediating the desire triggered by the cue, the anticipatory peak of desire um, triggered by the cue in a triggered instead of salience fashion. The people who believe the, the original prediction error notion was that dopamine was the learning mechanism. That would be elegant too. You know, if you could say this thing is learning and this is what you need for learning. Personally, I don't actually believe that interpretation, the, the notion that the dopamine neurons are the mechanism of learning. The reason I don't is because if you take away dopamine neurons, um, there's really no kind of association I think that can't still be learned. 
the brain can still learn in the absence of dopamine. I mean, I described the learning of taste aversions and new taste likings in rats who had no dopamine. Um, a, a, a even better, more elegant set of experiments in that vein was done about 10 years ago in the lab of Richard Palmiter at the University of Washington in Seattle. He developed a dopamine deficient mutant mouse, that is a mouse who, uh, so transgenic mutant mouse that lacked the gene to make dopamine itself. And these mice, you could give them dopamine in the same way you'd give them, give a Parkinson's patient's dopamine, you'd give them the medication L-dopa. So the mice, you could give them an injection once a day of L-dopa. And normally they'd be sitting and doing nothing, these dopamine deficient mice. But if you gave them the L-dopa injection, they'd wake up, they'd get up, they'd run around, they'd eat, they'd run around and do things. Um, and then after a few hours, they'd sink back into this dopamine deficient state when the drug wore off. So basically they could live a life with the medication. But what Richard Palmiter showed was that if you gave them say um, caffeine, which does not cause any dopamine, it doesn't produce any dopamine in the brain, but it activates the mice and they can run around too. What would happen is they would run around and under the caffeine. And if you ask them to learn, say, where a reward was in a maze, they wouldn't seem to do it under the caffeine. They'd run around the maze, they'd get the reward. They'd even eat the reward under caffeine, but they wouldn't get any better on that caffeine training day. So it was, gee, maybe they're not learning without the dopamine. But then he did a crucial thing. The next day, he gave them an injection of L-dopa, these dopamine deficient mice. And what did they do? They immediately ran to the place where the food was that they had learned the previous day when they had only caffeine and no dopamine in their brain. They had learned where the food was on the day they had no dopamine in their brain. They just needed the dopamine in order to show the motivated approach and guide their behavior to this food target. So experiments like that make me think that dopamine really is not needed to learn these predictions. It participates in the predictions and it mediates something that's, that motivationally is used to gain the behavior, to gain the reward in the, with these predictions. But I don't think it's the mechanism of learning. Mm. So in that experiment, dopamine, um, during the, the first day, the training bit, they, uh, there was no dopamine and so they couldn't show that learned behavior. But on the second day, with the dopamine there, they suddenly seem to show that behavior, which means that they have already learned it, they just couldn't express it. That's right. They didn't need to relearn it under the dopamine when they finally got the dopamine. They didn't need to learn it then. They already knew. They had the memory. They had learned it when their brain had no dopamine. Okay. So if dopamine is not this reward prediction error signal, then... Well, it, in a sense, it is the prediction error signal in the sense it's doing the things that Wolfram Schultz described as do. The question is just, is it causing the learning? Is it causing the prediction? Is it needed for the prediction? That's the question. And that's where I think it's not. Yeah. Mm. Right. So uh, what do you think is the significance of those signals? Well, um, I think I think they are making things salient. I mean, they are always noticeable things, the things that will make dopamine neurons fire. Wolfram Schultz had originally shown, even in the early 90s, that they'll fire to surprising non-reward things too, like the first time you drop your keys in front of the monkeys and it goes jangle, um, the dopamine neurons fire. 
do that five more times and the dopamine neurons will stop firing to it. Um, so they fire to sort of new things. They fire to reward related things. They fire to important things. So they're alerting, they're salient, um, they're doing that. And for reward cues, they're making these cues attractive and they're making the reward, a representation of reward in the brain more attractive at that moment so that you desire that more. I should also say there is an aversive kind of, of threat, a sort of an aversive motivational threat that dopamine can participate in too. Um, so dopamine can be sort of motivational salience. It doesn't always have to be reward salience. There are theories of paranoia, for example, in schizophrenia that suggests that overactive mesolimbic dopamine systems are contributing a large part to that paranoia. Um, it's probably not an accident that in schizophrenia, the medication that's used primarily are antipsychotic drugs, which are most commonly dopamine blocking drugs, just like the old antidonia, uh, the, the, the Roy Wise neuroleptic drugs. Antipsychotic drugs block dopamine receptors. Even the newest antipsychotics, the newer ones, the atypical antipsychotics, which also block serotonin receptors, they still block dopamine D2 receptors. Um, so the, a, a dopamine approach in medication is typical of the treatment of paranoia and schizophrenia. And the underlying cause might be related to that too. Mm. So in terms of like that signal, as a mechanism to increase like salience. Uh, is that, is that, do you think that's the same signal as the, the craving, the wanting signal, or is that separate? I, I think it's a related signal. It shares some neural mechanisms, both the, the craving and this threat thing. And it shares some psychological features too. Like you can't look away from these things. They are tension grabbing. They're meaningful in a motivational way. The valence is opposite, the affective valence. So one is attractive and the other is threatening and repulsive in a way, um, although it may call forth action to, to deal with it, maybe to even attack it. Um, but uh, there's, there's both overlap then and separation of these things. But dopamine may be part of the overlap rather than part of the separation. So what are your thoughts on Wilfram Schultz's more recent work showing that dopamine signals is for a utility prediction error, so showing that dopamine is coding this economic variable that is used to compare between different options and using this to inform decision-making. So for example, experiments showing that dopamine neurons encode uh, risk or subjective value and preferences. Yeah. What are your thoughts on his current work? I think that's very good. And it's clearly a, a sort of an ev evolution, a change in his the thinking over the years. I mean, originally, 20 years ago, the prediction error hypothesis of dopamine was that prediction error equation, often was called in terms like model free, you know, so in the sense that it was just a just an incremental prediction of sort of goodness of reward value. It had no idea of what the situation or the reward actually was. Um, but now the stuff that, that Wolfram is doing is very much model-based. And in this neuroeconomics language, um, the utility, it's kind of like saying reward again, utility. Is it, is it pleasant? Probably. Is it desired? Yes. Has it been learned about? Yes. It has all of these features combined. It is mediating that. Um, it would be good again to pull out those features and see which of them are the most important within utilities. There are ways of doing that and the ways of describing that in utility language. In, in any case, I think this is a good step forward. Mm. Mm. 
you mentioned that dopamine might be that overlapping bit. Um, why, why do you think the role of dopamine has been so controversial? What is so fundamental about this that is implicated in so many different things that we found so many different um, hypotheses about? So do you think that there is a universal principle of dopamine function underlying all of this? Well, uh, the universal principle is probably more of a neurobiological principle. I mean, dopamine is a modulator. It isn't really just a powerful signal on its own. It's really not that so much. What it is doing is modulating other neural signals like glutamate excitatory signals coming in from the cortex to the nucleus accumbens and striatum and from cortical-like structures. Um, and it's making those have more impact um, the, the, the signals about the cues, the signals about what's happening in the world, it's tuning them up at that moment, basically making them powerfully motivating and salient. Um, the neurobiological mechanisms in that synapse by which dopamine interacts with glutamate and such, that's probably pretty universal. Um, the, the psychological role of dopamine may share, I mean, it may share things even in the motor system and the dorsal striatum with the motivational system in the nucleus accumbens, but there's differences too, of course, and there's differences in the valence of, say, incentive salience versus fearful salience. There's, there's differences, and these differences come out partly anatomically, where the dopamine is acting in these structures, um, and partly through other ways too, I'm sure. So it could be that the same neurobiological mechanism implemented in different contexts and different anatomical locations results in different psychological functions. Yes, I think so. Although possibly off, always uh, related in some ways, these psychological functions. I mean, I, I mentioned that dopamine was in crustaceans and arthropods and insects. It's, stud it's studied in honeybees, it's studied in fruit flies. And surprisingly, perhaps it's studied in reward systems in honeybees and in fruit flies. Um, so that function, that kind of psychological functions also seems to be very fundamental, very ancient, very widely shared. Can we go back to talking about pleasure? So if dopamine does not mediate pleasure, then what does? Um, that's an excellent question. And that was a question that was put to my colleagues and I um, in our first 10 years very frequently. And uh, so we were definitely searching for pleasure mechanisms. You know, we can find them, even with our crude measures of sort of facial reactions to pleasantness, we can find brain mechanisms that enhance liking or that make liking go away completely and turn the sweetness into disgusting things. We can find that. Um, the, it's not dopamine, never dopamine in our hands. Dopamine has never changed liking, but opioid neurotransmitters, um, sort of like natural heroin chemical like it's in the brain, especially mu opioid neurotransmitters, but other ones too, like Delta and even Kappa in some places. They can enhance liking. Natural endocannabinoid neurotransmitters, marijuana like THC in marijuana like um, compounds can enhance liking. But not everywhere, and I, this is again a surprise, this is not something we were looking at, but what had, we found is that say, even in the nucleus accumbens, which is one of the most famous reward structures, most of the nucleus accumbens does not enhance liking when stimulated with opioids or endocannabinoids. In most of the nucleus accumbens, opioids and endocannabinoids act a little bit like dopamine. They turn on wanting for rewards, so animals will eat more and they'll pursue more rewards and things, but it doesn't enhance liking. But in about one-tenth of the nucleus accumbens, clustered in sort of the, the front top of the 
middle part, the medial shell of the nucleus accumbens, uh, is a little what we call a hedonic hotspot. Because there, if we make microinjections of opioids or endocannabinoids, they all enhance liking as long as they're within the boundaries of that hedonic hotspot. In a rat, the hedonic hotspot is just about a, a cubic millimeter. In a human nucleus accumbens, if we scale up to size, it might be about a cubic centimeter. So that's a very small spot, even in the human nucleus accumbens. Um, and it seems like there, it's specialized to be able to enhance liking in response to opioids and endocannabinoids and some a few other things. Um, never dopamine. There's in a nucleus accumbens, there's that hot spot. There's a couple in the cortex, one in the orbital frontal cortex at the very front, sort of right at the very front in the middle line uh, between the eyes. Um, there's another one in the insula, very deep in the sides of the cortex, limbic cortex. There's a couple in the below the nucleus accumbens in the what's called the ventral pallidum. It's the main output target of the nucleus accumbens and even one in the brainstem. So there's like this little network, scattered islands of hedonic hotspots. And if we stimulate any one of them with an opioid or endocannabinoid or optogenetic laser-like techniques today, it enhances liking by recruiting the others into co-activation. So one can recruit the others, the entire network into simultaneous activation. And if they do that, it seems to enhance the liking. So that's like a unified hedonic network of hotspots. Um, it's, it's kind of easy to disrupt though. It's, for, it's anatomically small, these hotspots. It's neurochemically restricted, never dopamine, for example. Um, it's relatively fragile functionally. So it's easy to block the turning on of them. Um, whereas the wanting system involving dopamine, but other things too, that's kind of really robust and easily turned on. So basically our brains are kind of wired, I think, to have pleasures that are fewer and further between intense pleasures than fewer than, than intense wants. The brain is oriented to want. It sort of adds liking pleasures as a add-on, but it's much more fragile. Okay, so why does pleasure exist at all? So like evolutionarily, motivation to perform certain actions is obviously very important for survival. So why must there be pleasure as well? So like, why not just set up a motivation system since this is so much more powerful than the pleasure signal anyway? It's a great question and it's an eternal puzzle. I don't think we have really final conclusive answers to this question. It's like the question, why does consciousness exist? Um, and it's not that there haven't been some suggestions. So the suggestions that have been made for why pleasure exists, people like Tony Dickinson at Cambridge University, um, even a little bit earlier, Paul Rosen at the University of Pennsylvania, they suggested that, yes, indeed, you could have a brain that was only wanting. And if we were to imagine an ancient brain that had only one of these things, wanting would be, I think, the thing to have. If you're attracted by cues, something wiggles and you go and eat it. Um, something with the right pheromone or signal gives, is attractive and you go and try to mate with it. Um, that's all you really need, these wanting systems, pleasure wouldn't necessarily be. But Dickinson and Rosen suggest that pleasure evolved later, basically as kind of a common currency. So if you have a wanting system that's evolved to want certain things, but you have someday a surprising pleasure associated with another thing, maybe you can take your wanting system and your learning system and you can now apply it to this new domain that created this surprise, this pleasure. So basically they thought of pleasure as a way of, of sort of generalizing evolved specialized systems to more general topics that they hadn't evolved to spe specialize in and basically widening the range of associative and cognitive machinery applications um, so that we could new kinds of rewards in life. So instead of 
fairly convincing. I mean, that's a, a plausible answer. Still, you could say, well, do you really need pleasure to do that? Couldn't you just have a wanting mechanism that's expanded without pleasure? And the answer probably would be yes, you could. Um, so why is it pleasure per se? And I don't think, you know, in the end that we have that answer. So like the idea there was that if you, that it's very hard to hard code, like hard code in everything that is important for an organism, especially with humans, um, our lifestyles are so different that you need some sort of signal that can teach the wanting system about what else is a good thing to, uh, to want, to crave. That is the notion, yes. Um, so back to the neurobiological mechanisms, like are different forms of pleasure. So we have sensory forms like um, eating a good food and feeling happy uh, or something more cognitive, like me feeling happy after I understood a concept. Are those mediated by different mechanisms? I think they probably are mediated by different mechanisms. Um, Tony Dickinson has had beautiful work showing that even even desires for things can be mediated by different mechanisms cognitively versus this mesolimbic Q-triggered wanting system. Um, they really are. And your desire for world peace is something very, very different and not mesolimbic probably at all. Um, so humans are complex. We have multiple psychological systems with multiple neural instantiations of those systems. Mm -hmm. So one question I've always wondered about is, why is it that different people have different preferences to different things? So why does one activity give someone pleasure and not other people? Um, it's a great question. And I don't think we have an individual by individual understanding of that yet. What we do have is kind of the, the understanding of rules of, of how some particular things become enjoyed and, and desired. Um, there's a lot of individual differences. So people have tried to study, say, how chili peppers, the hotness of chili peppers, the taste of it, um, how does that become liked and wanted in cultures that have really hot foods? You know, around kids around two and three, they don't tend to like these hot foods, but in, even in those cultures, but around, say, five or six, seven, they start to enjoy and eat those foods. Um, that's a, a kind of study of interest. There are very indiv big individual differences in things like addiction propensity, the vulnerability to addiction. We have understandings of some of these things. Um, in my lab now, I'd say the big question that we are trying to understand is a related question. It's the question of what controls what becomes wanted at a particular moment. You know, what do you want? If you're hungry, you want food. If you're thirsty, you don't want food, but you want something to drink. In other moments, you want something else. What you want changes from moment to moment. And the mesolimbic system is involved in a lot of these things, and all of those things, um, but it's changing its target. And as you said, some individuals have different targets that others aren't sharing. Um, and in addiction, something becomes wanted. One thing may become wanted or one set of things much more than other things and really, really excessively. So what's controlling this? And basically one has to move in beyond the reward dopamine system itself. Um, what we're doing now is looking at interactions between amygdala learning circuits. Amygdala has been very famous for emotional learning, things like fear learning, but it's also very important for desires and pleasure learning. Um, and we're basically trying to see, can we control the intensity 
and the focus of wanting to make one thing wanted more than other things. Um, so basically using optogenetic laser stimulation of the amygdala neurons in what's called the central nucleus of the amygdala. It's kind of a, it's almost a nucleus accumbens-like structure, a stridal-like structure within the amygdala. And it has the same properties that we can activate it and create intense desires. But it's being learned really, really powerfully and, and tremendously so that we can narrow, we can create a sugar addict out of a rat who pursues only sugar but ignores intravenous cocaine, ignores cocaine and only pursues sugar. We could take a different rat give it the same choice between sugar and cocaine and make it a cocaine addict by pairing the laser with the cocaine. We can even create wanting for what hurts. And this is really, this is really kind of a proof of principle demonstration of the notion of wanting really being separable from liking. If you can want what hurts and want it in an incentive motivation like way, the same way you want the sugar or the cocaine, then this is wanting sort of unleashed and separated from everything else. Um, it's also separated from predictions of outcome because you know the outcome is going to hurt and yet you want this thing. This is what we're creating now. And uh, it's kind of a, it's a prototype of addictive like motivation, wanting independent of liking as the incentive sensitizations theory views addiction, which is as intense wanting whether or not you like it and whether or not you expect it to be really good. Mm. We've mentioned a lot of the experiments linking dopamine to behavior. But how do we measure dopamine levels in an animal? Well, there's a number of ways um, that have been used in neuroscientism. Uh, Wolfram Schultz measures the firing of the dopamine neurons. Now that's not dopamine itself, but it's the neurons that likely contain dopamine and they have action potentials. So they spike electrophysiologically. Um, it's always been possible to measure dopamine release, actual neurotransmitter release, since the 1980s, at least, with what's called microdialysis. Um, in, a, in an animal, basically, basically, you sample the brain fluid, very, very tiny amounts by pushing fluid down through a little tube, and then it comes back. And you can chemically analyze what comes out and, and find the dopamine levels. That's a slow, you can measure slow changes in dopamine over many minutes, but not second to second. Um, there are chemically sensitive electrodes that can be implanted in the brain. These are called in vivo voltammetry electrodes that are sensitive to dopamine chemically. So they respond to that. That's a way of measuring fast release of dopamine. Newer ways um, are things like calcium neuroimaging, fiber photometry, where basically you have a little tiny microscope lens implanted in the brain and you've implanted a gene in the dopamine neurons that makes them fluoresce when they fire. So you actually see them glow in the dark, basically, when they're activated. That's a, that's a, a very neat um, way to study dopamine neuroactivity. In humans, none of these things are possible. So the usual way that dopamine release has been studied in humans is in PET studies. And in that, what's done is a person is given an injection of a radioactively labeled drug like um, like pimazide or raclopide, basically it's usually a dopamine antagonist. It's gonna block dopamine receptors. And the radioactive drug floats through the brain and it can bind to dopamine receptors. So the brain begins to glow basically in the PET 
radioactivity measure. But if a person has a surge of dopamine release, it may, their natural dopamine may sort of push aside some of these radioactive drug molecules because the natural dopamine will bind. And so there'll be a little decrease potentially in the radioactive glow right at that moment. And that's way, then the way basically dopamine release has been measured by sort of seeing these decreases. It's a little bit indirect because you never know is it, is it a decrease um, is a decrease signal uh, due to a surge in dopamine or is it due to a loss of dopamine receptors? Um, there's this problem of interpretation, but that's what's available so far in humans. What do you think are the biggest experimental challenges in your research? Well, um, there's, there's different kinds of challenges. Uh, technical challenges are as new techniques come out, it becomes possible to do all kinds of new things. So now you can watch the dopamine neurons fluoresce. That's really neat with the calcium imaging. It'd be great to have something that could do that in the human brain, but that's not coming for some time. Um, the new optogenetic techniques are wonderful. They allow us to stimulate neurons, but to stimulate just, say, the dopamine neurons, and even stimulate just dopamine neurons that are going from one structure to a particular other structure and not to the other one. So there's all kinds of selectivity that's going on. Technical advances help overcome one kind of challenge, but there's also conceptual challenges. Um, the challenge is how to think about what these brains are doing, the psychological processes that these brains are carrying out. You know, if we use a word like just reward or just like utility, which sort of combine a number of psychological things in that one word, um, we may in a sense have know what we're studying, we're studying reward or utility, but we don't know within that reward or utility, the psychological process. So one has to kind of unpack the psychology. This is a challenge. This is difficult because we have to kind of stumble upon and find out the way the psychological systems are working. As I said in the beginning, I never thought that wanting and liking were different psychologically. Mm. I really thought they were the same neural thing. And I thought they were the same psychological thing, just, just different words the same psychological thing. Um, now, I think that I was wrong then, that they are really quite different psychologically. Um, so we stumble upon, we have to find these things out. The final challenge that we face is we have to be able to give up attractive ideas. The universe whispers to us with little hints of new evidence, but it's so easy to ignore that the whispers, it's so easy to miss them. And some ideas are very attractive. You know, like you said, dopamine is, a, is in the common it, journalism and in, in common language. Um, that's an attractive notion. Dopamine is this pleasure transmitter. Prediction error was a tremendously attractive, tempting um, mean for neuroscientists, especially computationally oriented neuroscientists, just because it's so elegant and wouldn't it be great if that's true, that prediction error equation? Um, people want certain things to be true because they think, well, how could it be otherwise? The idea is so clear and compelling that it captures them. And that's great, but one has to be able to give that up because what the universe, what the brain does is sometimes tell us, well, your most treasured ideas are not right. And you're gonna have to change if you want to understand what the brain is really doing. And we have that's some are more willing to do that than others. So that's it's something we all face with, though. We have to face that temptation um, and come up with our own reaction. Just the last few questions. What is it about doing science that gives you pleasure? 
Well, um, many things. Uh, I think in, in science, it's, it's important to really be fascinated by the fundamental issues. And I, I think that's, that's the most, probably most important thing that compels a person, impels them through a, a career in science, to just want to pursue these topics, to devote a life to understanding them as well as we can. But, and, and I also enjoy the day-to-day -day practice of science. I mean, we're working with wonderful people, very talented people um, on these fascinating issues. But probably the very best thing about science when it, when it works and this is that sometimes one does get a sense that the universe has whispered something new and it grows gradually, you know, because first, as I say, like with the dopamine wanting, at first we didn't really believe it. Um, we thought the experiments were wrong. Then when we started to believe it, it was just a very tentative notion and we thought, well, it'll be a notion that maybe will last five years and then be replaced by something else. And then when we tested it further and further, it just sort of held on and became stronger um, as, as a notion. So there's, this is a wonderful feeling when it happens, you know, that something new is developing, a new understanding that, that you're being allowed, in a sense, to see. Um, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Of course, we always still live with the uncertainty of knowing whether this is the, the wonderful thing. We do it to the best of our ability, but we have to, again, always be prepared that we may find out that we're wrong and uh, that we have to be face, ready to face that too. That's the life in science. Not to get too philosophical, but um, many people say that like the meaning of life is just to have fun and enjoy yourself. And I've always thought of that as a very like arbitrary, maximizing a neurobiological state of pleasure. <laughs> what what are your thoughts on that? Well, I have a very wonderful neuroscience colleague at Oxford, um, Morten Kringlebach, who has thought a lot about the meaning of life and about um, happiness and about brain systems of happiness. And I think Morten Kringlebach, he would, he would draw on the notion that I think Aristotle proposed thousands of years ago um, that meaningfulness in life and well-being in life, happiness in life, really has two major kinds of components. One is hedonics, yes, being happy and having some pleasure, but the other is eudaimonics, eudaimonia, and sort of meaningful, a positive meaning in life, pursuing things that have meaning, um, whether or not they're pleasant. And these brain systems that we've been talking about, the reward systems, they have something to do with the hedonic side. There's evidence actually that even general human happiness is involving nucleus accumbens activation. So it may be contributing really as a reward system to even diffuse happiness. But the eudaimonic side of life, that's not going to be a mesolimbic um, process. And uh, Morton has ideas about the default network and, and other brain networks involved in eudaimonic meaning. Um, he might be someone to talk to. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. One last question: What advice do you have for young scientists? Well, I think you want to, you know, you want to follow your dream. If you're excited by the, the real question to ask you, ask yourself is: Are you really, really excited by these issues? Do you want to devote a life to them? If you are able, would you really want to? Um, and the answer to that is not definite. You know, that that's going to be an individually different answer. But then once you once you fi follow it, then it's really a question of sort of discerning your own strengths and weaknesses as you go. Some, some things you'll be really good at, other things you might want to be good at, but we're not, and we learn that too. Um, so we kind of focus on strengths. The other is, um, the last is being ready for surprises. 
If we go into science, we will be surprised. We will sometimes be disappointed also. Sometimes those disappointments will have a silver lining. The wanting versus liking came out of something like that. Um, so we have to kind of be ready for, for both the, the, the positive surprises, the whispers of the universe to us and the disappointments, it's gonna happen that way. But as long as you enjoy the ride, you know, as long as you are doing what you want, this is a meaningful enterprise. And I think it can be very rewarding hedonically too. Ken, it's been, it's given me great hedonic and eudaimonic pleasure talking to you today. So uh, it's a huge honor. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Paco. Good luck in future. <laughs>